Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's Chief Brussels Correspondent. It's good to be back with you this week, and it's been a busy week here in the EU. European Council President Charles Michel made his first visit to Beijing, but the timing of his much-tailed meeting with President Xi Jinping was delicate. It coincided with protests about the country's zero-COVID policy and the death of former President Jiang Zemin. Meanwhile, back in Brussels, the European Commission proposed freezing 7.5 billion euro of EU funds that were supposed to go to Hungary. It was a historic announcement. Uh, the essential milestones uh, must all be met in full before Hungary can submit its uh, payment request. This is Executive Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis, along with a group of other commissioners, making the announcement on Wednesday. In short, uh, no funds will flow until the essential milestones are properly implemented. Um, today's endorsement. As listeners will recall, the Hungarian government has been at odds with Brussels for some time over concerns about corruption and rule of law. But the proposal to freeze the funds represented a new front in the standoff, though EU finance ministers will now have to decide whether to move forward with this next week when they meet. We will keep you updated on that. Later in this episode, we'll update you on the Conference on the Future of Europe, an initiative launched by President Macron of France in 2021 to answer the age-old problem, how to make the EU more relevant and accountable to citizens. We'll be speaking later with European Commissioner Dubravka Suitze. Also, we'll hear from several European foreign ministers who visited Ukraine this week, as well as Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitro Kuleba, who spoke to our colleague Lili Bayer. Well, the last time I attended the NATO ministerial, I came with three words, weapons, weapons and weapons. This time, while this request remains absolutely acute, I will specify it by saying that we need air defense, tanks and production lines. But first, let's turn to the battle between the EU and the United States. It's over the Inflation Reduction Act, legislation that was introduced by President Biden and passed by the US Congress earlier this year. On this vote, the yeas are 220, the nays are 207. The resolution, the motion is adopted. To discuss, I'm joined by Barbara Munz, our senior trade correspondent. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Suzanne. And Nick Vinokur, our editor-at-large and new author of Friday's Brussels Playbook. Great to have you with us, Nick. Hey, hey. 
Look, Barbara, maybe you'd start off the discussion by filling us in on why has this row erupted? And we know that President Macron, for example, has gone to Washington, D.C. But what's at issue here? So the Inflation Reduction Act is a is a U.S. law that has already been passed in Congress and which stipulates that for a lot of products such as electric cars, they have to be made and assembled in the U.S. or at least North America. So that would mean that, for example, EU car makers would have a lot more issues trying to sell their cars in the U.S. So there seems to be a couple of issues at play. I think there are two main things. The first one is the economic one, right? This would hurt a lot of EU companies, not just in the key car making countries, but really across Europe, across different sectors. So there's a very big economic impact, fears of jobs, losses, fear of new investments going to the US instead of the EU because of this act and because of the low energy prices in the US. And the second one is political, ideological, the sense that Europe feels a little bit betrayed in the sense that they weren't properly informed about the law. They see it as discriminatory. They see it as undermining the global trade system, which the EU attaches a lot of value to it. And all of that, I think is a a rather explosive mix, something that the EU really wants to see fixed. But at this point, that doesn't really seem to be working. So, I mean, Nick, did Europe find itself, pardon the pun, asleep at the wheel on this? Or, you know, how did uh, they get caught in the back foot in terms of this legislation that now they're saying is really going to negatively impact Europe? Well, it's kind of the same pattern we've seen with a couple of other big transatlantic blowups. They say they weren't consulted. They didn't uh, weren't informed of that this was going to happen. Of course, they could have been watching C-SPAN and seeing the debates going on for months and months, and uh, the subsidies getting put in. That's the congressional uh, TV station that everyone in America tunes into. Yeah, and yeah, I think I think there's a sense of disappointment. But, you know, like Barbara was saying, there's a big political component here because not only is it a fear that, you know, European car companies are going to be locked out of the U.S. market and lose a huge market share over there. There's also the sense that, well, we're paying a big part of the bill for the Ukraine war. The gas exports are quite expensive that we're getting from the United States. There's also export controls. They're saying Europe needs to be tougher on China and they're feeling kind of constrained by all this. And again, just feeling like they're not sort of consulted enough. Um, I was talking to a, a diplomat this week and the way he framed it was, you know, the U.S. has basically decided to go it alone against China. And that was sort of the frustration that they understood that there was going to be the U.S. and Europe working to compete economically with China. But by making these moves, they perceive that the U.S. has decided to go it alone and just kind of cut out the Europeans completely. Yeah, maybe just one caveat there. I think from the U.S. side, playing devil's advocate here, is that they have been pushing the EU for years, right, to be tougher on China, to go against China together. Um, It was one of the frustrations in the Trade and Tech Council, of which we have another meeting coming up really soon in Washington, that the EU... U.S. tried to convince the EU to say, "Okay, let's go at it together. And the EU, because of its very complicated China policy, was much more um, hesitant to do that. And at a certain point, Washington just said, "Okay, we'll do it alone, right? Putting pressure on the EU to follow suit. So just to follow up on that, I think uh, that's absolutely right. And one thing that's happening now is that there are these big protests and there's all this upheaval in China. So it actually makes it more difficult for for the Europeans. And we also said, well, yeah, it's it's more 
and more difficult to defend that kind of exceptional, targeted, surgical approach to China that the Europeans are all about, given that you know China's really looking more and more authoritarian, or dare I say, even totalitarian in some in some ways. So that I think is also putting pressure on the Europeans to reevaluate sort of what, how exactly should we be on China? And we saw, as we mentioned there, Charles Michel visiting Beijing this week. Barbara, there's a lot to talk here in Brussels. I know you and our, and our colleagues here, we've been reporting all week about what the EU can do to respond to this. Um, complex things about subsidies, about some kind of industrial plan. What are the options here? Yeah, that's the big debate going on now. Obviously, everybody would prefer a diplomatic solution, right? A concession from Washington, and they have not given up on that route. But the signals that they're getting from Washington is that that will be very hard. And if anything, it would be relatively small compromises. So then the question is, what do we do, right? Technically, the normal way would be to go to the World Trade Organization, start a dispute there. It takes ages. It doesn't really necessarily to any concrete results. Second option would be to really use the trade defense instrument that the EU has built, so tariffs, basically, imposing tariffs on U.S. products, which, again, technically, legally, you can do, but it doesn't really look great to start a trade war with the U.S. at this point when we're fighting Russia and China. Exactly. We had that, it's all very Trump era, isn't it? Very exactly. And then so the, the option that kind of remains would be, and that is the option that's also coming out of Washington, just do the same in Europe, right? And that is the discussion that we're having now. You see France very vocal pushing for that. You also see Green Economy Minister in Germany, Robert Habeck, to have exactly this plea. It is still very much a discussion in Germany, but the Germans seem to be getting on board. And in that sense, you see that even though a lot of the free traders and a big part of the European Commission still at this point is very reluctant, hesitant to go to this route, you just see how it's kind of becoming an almost irreversible path that we're heading into. But I mean, fighting protectionism with protectionism. I mean, a lot of countries here in the EU, free trade-minded countries, you know, will oppose that. Absolutely. And they already are. They are very vocal about that. We shouldn't go to this route. The same goes for EU trade chief Valdis Dombrovskis. The same also goes for a lot of other countries in the world, right? If the US, China and the EU, the three big economic trading blocs, just try to out-subsidize each other, it could be detrimental for the global economy. Yeah. And just a small kind of thing is that it's it's about subsidies, but not totally, because Europe does subsidize to a huge degree various industries. It's really about this aspect of we're going to have preferential, we're going to prefer our own suppliers over foreign ones. And that's what the bone of contention is. And it looks like, I think, from the European side, things always move slowly. Now there's a process of, okay, let's look at which industries on the European side are going to be most affected and would need to be protected by some kind of bi-European stipulations. And I said, that's a process that's going to go on for weeks, probably until March when there's another meeting of uh, European leaders and there's going to be a big discussion about what we do. So this is probably going to be a theme through the whole first quarter of the year and what, you know, what the EU does. We'll watch that very closely. Thank you very much to Barbara and Nick for joining me here in the Political Podcast Studio. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, we take you on a journey to Ukraine with seven European foreign ministers and we hear from Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitro Kuleba. Also, are treaty changes in the EU's future? We discuss the EU institutions' responses to suggestions from citizens on how it can be improved with European Commissioner Dubravka Svice. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. This week, our colleague Lily Byer travelled with a group of seven foreign ministers from the Baltic and Nordic regions. The group, which includes foreign ministers from Estonia, Finland, Iceland, Latvia, Lithuania, Norway and Sweden, represented the largest high-level delegation to visit Kiev since Russia's full-scale invasion began in February. The European politicians travelled to Ukraine a day before a NATO minister's gathering in Bucharest. On the ride from Poland into Ukraine, she first sat down in a small train car with Estonian foreign minister Irmas Reinsalu. He explained why these ministers are choosing to travel to Ukraine at this time. There are decisive moments in the course of this war. And... Uh saying that the West needs a change in the paradigm, as he puts it, of its support for Ukraine. To pass a message of a need to change the paradigm of Western support to that war, to Ukrainian victory. Because during the nine months, the Western support has been, in a way, like gradual, that uh, Russia is committing some atrocities or escalative steps, and then uh, it is going to be... Uh, rather predictably followed by European sanctions package and uh, further deliverers of uh, arms. But now I think the approach should be that we should immediately invest what is needed to a speedy manner end uh, this uh, war. And the only outcome which is satisfying is Ukrainian victory. And what is important, uh, that we will, without any caveats, uh, will deliver all the conventional weapon systems and ammunition what Ukrainians ask. It was a message echoed by other foreign ministers travelling along the bumpy route into the war-torn country. Here's Lithuanian Foreign Minister Gabrielius Landsbergis. Even though there are uh, very pressing needs uh, when it comes to what Ukraine needs now, and yes, you're very right, that electricity shortages and water shortages uh, are the most clear examples that these issues need to be tackled and and Ukraine needs to be helped in this. But from from my side, I think that I will be advocating that we cannot forget that's still the main task. And the main task is we need to help Ukraine win the war. That um, Russia is able to create problems with uh, even when it's under sanctions, you know, now take Ukraine being attacked with, with Iranian drones. And this is you know, just just one example where Russia quite cheaply can procure large amounts 
of drones that it's using against the electricity infrastructure and then incurring quite a lot of damage to Ukraine. And the only way to stop it is let Ukraine win. So I will be advocating in, in here and in Bucharest uh, for, for more weapons uh, to Ukraine and especially tanks. Once he arrived in Kiev with the foreign ministers, Ukraine's deputy prime minister, Ola Stefanishnya, also called for more weapons. I would say that... Uh the most urgent thing is something that can save our people and help us survive the winter. So first and foremost is the air defense systems and missiles to these systems as much as possible. So this is first and foremost. And of course, long-range artillery, which allows us to save our soldiers to be not that much tactical, but more strategical. Lily also caught up with Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaleba en route. They started by talking about the message he was bringing to NATO allies at this week's meeting in Bucharest. Well, the last time I attended the NATO ministerial, I came with three words, weapons, weapons and weapons. This time, while this request remains absolutely acute, I will specify it by saying that we need air defense, tanks, and uh, production lines. One issue that remains overlooked is the need for NATO countries to uh, launch uh, production lines for weapons and ammunition. While we are fighting the battles of today, we have to think how we will be fighting the battles of tomorrow. And uh, in order for us to win in the battles of tomorrow, NATO countries has to begin the production of necessary weapons today. If that doesn't happen, we won't be able to win. As simple as that. And there is no, there is no time for deliberations or endless coordination meetings. It's time to begin now. Are you frustrated with some friends of Ukraine right now? Um, I I know them too well to be frustrated with them. Uh, They are good friends. They are uh, more than helpful. It wouldn't be, it would be close to impossible for us to uh, sustain the Russian pressure and to prevail on the battleground without them. But as I said, they still have some what I call psychological barriers, which they have to overcome by changing the optics, by seeing Ukraine. And they have to, to begin to see Ukraine's membership as, um, as an opportunity and not as a threat. Um, there's been a lot of chatter about um, possible soft pressure from some Western governments for Ukraine to consider negotiations with Russia. What is your response to those who would like to see Kiev sitting down with Moscow right now? Come to Kiev uh, and sit with us uh, in uh, in the bomb shelter, hearing the blast, blasts outside uh, and uh, reading news about uh, children uh, and uh, adults uh, killed by Russian missiles or energy infrastructure destroyed. Uh, and and, uh, creating unbearable conditions for civilians. Thanks so much to Lily for bringing us those insights from the foreign ministers in Ukraine this week. And finally, 
we'll close with a discussion on a challenge that has faced the EU since its inception, how to make the EU more accountable to its citizens. This Friday, representatives from the major EU institutions will gather in Brussels for an event on the Conference on the Future of Europe. That's the name of the year-long initiative which ended in May and which we've covered on this podcast before. It will be the first chance to hear from the European Commission and Council about how they plan to respond to 49 proposals which came out of this initiative. To get a preview of what to expect, I spoke to Dubravka Suica, the Commissioner for Democracy and Demography, who is leading the Commission's work on the Conference on the Future of Europe. She says that the Commission's work agenda for next year will incorporate proposals from the citizens, although some of the more substantive suggestions would need treaty change, something that's a no-no for most EU member states at the moment. Which is based on 75% of uh, citizens' uh, proposals. Wow, okay, so you're saying 75% yes. of the... Of 49, yes, definitely. So what kind of things are we talking about? Ah, let me tell you. For example, mental health was a very important topic. Then we have uh, mobility learning. Then we have digitals and metaverse. Then we have food waste. Then uh, climate loss. Uh, a lot has been done until now. A lot is already in the pipeline and a lot will be done on behalf of Commission. So in a way, do you think that some of the recommendations that were made were already in place with the Commission? I mean, has the Commission done anything new? Some were already in place, of course, but uh, we were listening and not only listening. For example, better internet for kids. This is something which we heard from them and we did it. (laughs) So there were many ideas which we heard from citizens during their panels. Yes. You know that we had the four panels. uh, in uh, Throughout the year, these meetings of citizens. In Florence, in Warsaw, in Dublin and in Maastricht. Yes. And uh, we, they were deliberating together with us. And then uh, we picked up what they said. In the end, there, there were 49 proposals, 326 measures. And this is uh, what we are incorporating in our work. So, for example, you mentioned internet safety for children. So what's the commission coming forward with on that? Uh, it's very important for us because you know that nowadays uh, children are really at, at risk, definitely, online. And we have to protect our children online. You know that we adopted first ever European uh, strategy on the rights of child in order to protect children, especially now. We did it earlier, but now it becomes more and more important after the war in Ukraine. Okay, so... You're saying that, you know, 75% of these have have got into the Commission's work programme. But of course, some might say there were kind of things that, A, you might have been working on or were kind of the low-hanging fruit. Some of the suggestions made by the Conference on the Future of Europe need treaty change. And these are the big issues, you know, enlargement or more defence. Where does the Commission stand on those issues? Commission is very clear on this. As you know, during the State of the Union speech in September, President von der Leyen said publicly that Commission is in favour of triggering Convention. So as this Parliament has called for, I believe the moment has arrived for European Convention. So if we are always on the side of those who want to change Europe and those who want to make Europe be more efficient, faster, and this is uh, what we are aiming at, of course, three institutions should be in alignment, Parliament, Commission and the Council. Uh, At this moment there are debates within the Council, so we are looking forward to this, and if uh, there will be consensus on this, we will, of course, uh, start this. But 
before we start this triggering convention and treaty change, there is a lot to do. There is, as you know, there we have this unanimity clause. Yes. We can change, and we are also in favor of changing unanimity in some fields, like taxes, like uh, in some parts of common and security, uh, defense, foreign yes. policy, defense. Uh, then uh, we also think that for sanctions, uh, this should be abolished because sometimes you need only one to align with you, then also on uh, human rights. So there are many sectors where we think we uh, can uh, do it without unanimity. And this is what we are opting for. Yeah. I mean, look, we all know here, a lot of our listeners will know that the problems the EU, for example, had in getting through that sanctions package due to one country, its last sanctions package, Hungary. Um, And we've seen uh, that country block other measures. So as you say there, this is the key issue. Should this principle unanimity, the fact that some EU measures need the unanimous agreement of all 27 states, should that be changed or not? So this is... According to my opinion, and uh, this is also Commission's position, it should be changed. But not everyone in the Brussels bubble is as positive about how the conference on the future of Europe has been received and whether these suggested changes from citizens will ever see the light of day. I caught up with Gabrielle Bischoff. She's a German member of the European Parliament from the left-wing Socialist and Democrats group. I mean, I would have hoped that after this long time and the experience, at least now the feedback event would have planned a bit better, a bit longer ahead, involving more also the members of parliament. But it was in the same process like the whole conference. Just one step, short planning time and also a very limited information to the participants. I put some of Bischoff's criticisms to Suica, but she's convinced that the Commission has taken this process very seriously. I, I would oppose them. Mm. I think it, is, it was very serious, especially because we have now the result, and the result is first uh, these 49 proposals, and the result is Commission Work Programme, and the result is that we have deliberative panels uh, ahead of each legislation. For us, it, it was of utmost importance. And I think that we did uh, good work. Although it lasted less than we, that it was envisaged at the beginning, but due to COVID, we couldn't start earlier. But I think we, we uh, accomplished what we uh, promised and what we committed ourselves. Of course, the elephant in the room is treaty change. Many of the recommendations that came out of the Conference on the Future of Europe would necessitate change the EU treaties. And that's not something that many countries have an appetite for at the moment. So I asked MEP Bischoff whether treaty change was really a reality. No, I think, I mean, if we look at the situation in the European Union, we still in many important areas are not capable to act as much as we could and should. And on the other hand, you see the plans about enlargement, etc. We will not be able to do this because it's not working properly with 27 and it would not at all with even more member states. So there is a lot of pressure also. But I always said I'm not expecting the huge Christmas tree of treaty changes. Everything you always wanted to do. What I'm expecting is very targeted treaty changes. I think on the way we vote and come to decisions is key. Some elements, especially also strengthening the social dimension of Europe also improving our accountability, improving our democratic processes. 
Time will tell whether the process will ever result in meaningful changes to the way the EU operates. But that's it for this week. Be sure to follow the podcast wherever you listen. Thanks this week to Julia Poloni and Ellen Bonin on production and to our editor, James Randerson. This week's episode was produced by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.